book of Psalms, chapter number 48, and verse number 1. If you found it, say amen. amen. I'm going to read through verse number 3. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. Amen. How many believe that? Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. In the city of our God, in the mountain of His holiness, Beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. God is known in her palaces for refuge. Amen. Tonight I want to talk to you about holiness from the inside out. Lord, I pray God for your anointing on me as I speak your word into the lives of your people and on our ears to hear. God, I pray, Lord Jesus, let the seed of your word find good ground in our lives. Let it be mixed with faith. Help us to grow in grace and knowledge of you. Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated in the presence of the Lord. Amen. The Bible said that God is great and greatly to be praised. This particular psalm is about Mount Zion. Mount Zion is what is known in Jerusalem as the city of David. It's the area that, uh, that, that David was fond of. It was on Mount Zion where David had put up a tent. And that's where they stored the Ark of the Covenant while it was waiting for the temple to be built. At this place, that Mount Zion is where further in the future... The Last Supper would take place. Jesus would meet with his disciples. And uh, it would be a few weeks after that in that same place where the Holy Ghost was poured out in the upper room. And so Mount Zion is significant in the life of God's people and in the history of the church. It can be argued that the church, not, not really even argued, there's not really an argument, it's just a statement of fact, that the church was born on Mount Zion. Mount Zion is the birthplace of the church in the upper room. And the Bible said it called it the mountain of his holiness. So Mount Zion is the mountain of his holiness. And then the Bible says that Mount Zion is beautiful for situation. That word situation doesn't mean the, like situations that we face or situations that we get into. Here it means it's beautiful because of the way it's situated. Because it's situated on the mountain of His holiness. That that is where God is known. And can I tell you that there is still a beauty that comes from people that are willing to live in the mountain of His holiness. There is a difference between holiness living people and worldly living people. And the Bible said the reason Mount Zion was beautiful was because of how it was situated. And if the church ever comes down from the mountain of holiness, the church will lose what makes it beautiful. God is known in her palaces for a refuge. There is safety in holy living. Amen. 
The Bible said in Revelation chapter number 2 and verse number 14 and 15. The Bible says, but I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So thou hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. It's not very often that God uses the terminology that he hates something. But he said, I hate the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. He said to this particular church, he said, there is a problem. And the problem is that not, not in this assembly, but in the assembly that he was talking to in Revelation chapter number two, he said, you've got a problem. He said, you've got people in the assembly that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, he says this, he says, which things I hate. Now, he doesn't hate the people that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. He hates the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. This sect of Christianity and what they believed. The the Lord said, I hate that doctrine. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans was begun by a man named Nicholas who was a proselyte of Antioch. He was converted in Antioch. He was one of the first seven church deacons chosen to look after the matters, the business matters of the early church while the apostles gave themselves to prayer and fasting. You can read about this appointment in Acts 6, 3 through 5. Nicholas' dedication to the church didn't last very long. According to early writings on heresy, Nicholas eventually left the doctrine of the church and introduced his own flavor of doctrine, which took his name, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. His doctrine came about really as a reaction to the legalism of a group called the Judaizers. I don't want to get in the weeds of the history too much because this is a side story to what I'm trying to talk about tonight. But if you look in the book of Acts, one of the first major conflicts of the church had to do with a group called the Judaizers. They were Jews who were trying to impose the Jewish law on converts into the church. They were telling the converts that were not of Jewish background, that for them to really be saved, that they had to be circumcised, they had to follow the dietary laws, they had to follow the Sabbath laws, the feast days, etc., etc. And the Judaizers imposed the Old Testament law on the non-Jews. It caused a controversy because people that were coming into the church from Roman background and other backgrounds They came into the church and they they loved being filled with the Holy Ghost. They loved worshiping God. They loved the truth. They loved being born again. 
but they didn't want to have to live the Old Testament law. And so it caused a, a conflict in the church. The Judaizers were the subject of the first council in the book of Acts chapter 15 when the, all, the Bible said all the elders and the leaders came together, the bishops and the elders came together in Jerusalem. They debated the topic. Uh, if, you, if you want to uh, read more about it, the Bible said there was no small dispute. If there's no small dispute, that means there was a big dispute. They contended to the face. There was anger. There was debate. And then in the end of the matter, they made the decision that the Judaizers were wrong, that the law should not be imposed on the converts into the church. And that became the doctrine of the church from then until now. But, the, but Nicholas, when he didn't hang around long enough for it to be settled. Nicholas, he went with a complete opposite view. And so where the Judaizers on one side were trying to impose more than necessary, Nicholas countered that extreme by going to the far other side. Nicholas introduced a false a false freedom of the flesh to the church. In the book of Revelation, John compared the doctrine of the Nicolaitans to that of Balaam in the Old Testament. If you remember in the Old Testament, Balaam was a man that was known as a prophet. He was hired by the Midianite king Balak to, pro to pronounce a curse, to prophesy a curse over the children of Israel. And every time he opened his mouth to curse Israel... God wouldn't let him curse him. He blessed him instead. And because he could not curse them with prophetic words, he then, what he did, what Balaam did was cause the children of Israel to mix godliness and worldliness together. You can read the story of that from Numbers 22 through 25. They cursed themselves from within by embracing ungodliness and sinfulness. And that same spirit that was behind Balaam causing the church to curse themselves with carnality and ungodliness was the same spirit behind the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans was a flesh-based doctrine. Now, again, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds on it, but, uh, but, but Nicholas basically adopted Plato's doctrine of dualism. Plato was a dualist. His mentality was that there was such separation between the spirit and the flesh. They're so separated from each other that whatever you do in the flesh doesn't affect your spirit, and whatever you do in your spirit doesn't affect your flesh. Well, we know that's wrong. We know that that is not at all the teaching of the Bible. But because, according to Nicholas and Plato's doctrine, this so-called Christianized Greek philosophy basically said that since they were sinners saved by grace, they could live however they wanted to and remain saved on the inside because the spirit and the flesh of a person are not interconnected. His teaching would later become the doctrine, the basis for doctrines like eternal security, once saved, always saved, 
do what you want, live how you want, everything's going to be okay. This teaching called for little change on, in the life of a Christian. It called for little change on the outward. It called for little change in lifestyle because of that separation they believed was there. Their flesh could do what they wanted and their spirit could still stay right. And God said, I hate the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. He said, I hate the mentality that says that you can live however you want to live and everything's all right. God said, the problem with this church at Pergamos, he says, the problem you've got in your church right there is that you've got people that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. They are worldly and carnal in their fleshly life, but they still want to be spiritual on the inside. And God said, I hate that mentality. Can I tell you that when God saves somebody, when the Holy Ghost starts to work on somebody, God doesn't only want it to be in your spirit, but he wants that holiness that's in your spirit to work its way out into other areas of your life. Amen. And so, and so in our apostolic belief and our foundational doctrines of the scripture, a holiness lifestyle includes holiness on the inside and the outside. Amen. We are not holy because what we put on the outside. We put things on the outside because we want to be holy. It starts on the inside. And so the types of activities that we participate in, the things we say, we do, the things we consume in, as far as media and culture goes are regulated by the idea that we want to be right with God. And anything that would weaken our flesh and draw us away in the spirit is something we need to draw a fence up against and say, no, I'm not going to give that the opportunity to divert my attention from where I need to be and how I need to live. Nicholas taught that these externals were not important, but God had a different view. He said twice in the book of Revelation, in chapter 2, verse 6, and verse 15, that he hated the teachings of the Nicolaitans, and he still hates the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Amen. As the older apostles began to die one by one, and leaders who had not walked with Christ or been trained by the original apostles, some gained weaker conviction, and they began to subtly divert the message. It was later as this doctrine of the flesh, this pleasing of the flesh began that other doctrinal errors began to take root in the church. And the church was the, the church in general drifted far from a biblical standard of living. Amen. We're privileged to live in the time of the latter rain when truth has been restored and God's Spirit is poured out on all flesh. It's a privilege to walk in the Spirit and live for God. But can I tell you that the doctrine of the Nicolaitans is still alive and well in churches today. Amen. Some are compromising what 
to us are non-negotiable principles of Scripture. Compromising them for personal convenience and societal acceptance. Worrying more about fitting in with the culture that's getting further and further from God than they are with fitting in with what the Word of God says. Amen. The spirit of this age is accept whatever you want to accept and everything's all right. But the Bible is true no matter what you want to accept. It doesn't change the truth of the Word of God. And so God's call to us is to live a holy life. Amen. Can I press the issue just a little bit more and say that there's a faction of apostolics who are surrendering holiness because it's too burdensome. They're laying truth in the cold grave of tolerance because holiness is too inflammatory. Can I tell you that we are called to follow peace with all men, but not at the expense of holiness. Hebrews 12 and 14, follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. God's holiness is one of the essential and absolute attributes of His divine nature. God's holiness sets the standard for all other holiness. The contrast between God and man is so broad and wide. God is holy. Man is sinful. God is holy, but man is fallen. Can I tell you that if you look back over history, if you were to go back a mere hundred years into the past, you would see that much of Christianity maintained a strong standard of holiness when it came to appearance. It was in the 20s, right before the Great Depression, where the roaring 20s began to change the way that people in our society and culture approach the outward appearance. From there, during the Great World War, when men were away fighting and women entered the workforce, it fundamentally changed the nature of the home. You advance from that and you get into the 60s and the sexual revolution, the 70s with the emerging drug culture, the 80s when Madonna came on the scene. That's about all you got to say there. And leading on into this modern culture where everything that is unrighteous is being praised by this culture. Amen. You may or may not be aware, but there is a movement afoot in our culture to make pedophilia acceptable. I'm going to tell you, a generation that will abuse its children is a generation that will reap the wrath of God. But you watch in the last hundred years or so when the church and culture were pretty well on the same level footing, when there was a standard of modesty that, that lived in culture in general. And then as I outlined generationally a few of the changes, 
And the church has stayed where the church is supposed to be. The real church has stayed where the church is supposed to be. But culture has continued its downward slide. I would dare say that the ones who have remained consistent to biblical truth are not the weirdos and the wackos in modern society. It's the ones that have in the last hundred years have thrown everything that was a bulwark of family and modesty and holiness and thrown it into the gutter of society. It is not the church that has changed. It is the world that has changed. Amen. And if we set our standard for the church and for our lives as Christians based on the world, then we'll never have a standard because the world is always changing. Amen. God sets the standard for what holy is. Man was created in God's image. But because of sin, he has lost one of the most essential features of the image of God. And that feature is the feature of holiness. The Hebrew word Kadesh and the Greek word Hagasimos contain, both of them contain the meaning of the word withdraw. That is the Hebrew word for holiness and the Greek word used in your Bible for holiness. They both have this idea of withdrawal or separation. First Chronicles 16 and 29, give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering. Come before him. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. That word holiness in the Hebrew, it means, it refers to something that is consecrated or dedicated. It is, it, it, here's, the, here's the term from the Hebrew dictionary. I don't even know if it's a real word in English, but, but I get what they're trying to say. It's the word apartness. Apartness, sacredness, separateness, set-apartness. So holiness in the Hebrew mind is this idea of apartness, that there's something holy that draws us apart from the world. Amen. It comes from a Hebrew root word which lends the idea of making something clean, to, to set it apart, to devote it, to treat it as something sacred. And I quote, to keep oneself apart or separate. When the Hebrew mind writes the word holiness, what they're thinking when they write the word is that there is an apartness between the children of God and the world and carnality and sin. Amen. We don't get to impose on the Bible what our culture says it is. We have to understand that when they wrote the word, what they were believing was there's something, there's an apartness to the child of God. In the Greek, an example, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 7, for God hath not called us to uncleanness, but unto holiness. Now, 
Just, just taking this, this sentence by itself. For God has not called us to uncleanness, but unto holiness. What is the contrast that the author is making in this verse? What are the two things that he's showing the contrast between? When Paul wrote this to the Thessalonians, he said, God has not called us to uncleanness, but he has called us to holiness. People who don't live holy are unclean in the eyes of God. The contrast is cleanliness and uncleanliness. You see that? It's right there. If you don't see it, it's right there, I promise. Holiness here in the Greek, it means sanctification. Here, here's something that I find very interesting. It means the effect of consecration. The effect of consecration. In the New Testament mind, holiness is the effect of consecration or the result of consecration. Amen. Hallelujah. True consecration will have the effect of holiness in someone's life. Praise God. Hallelujah. We're going to define consecration in a minute. But this root word for holiness, it means the effect of consecration, and the root word means to separate, to separate. To consecrate things to God. Scholars define holiness to mean separate and apart. There is something about holy people that is separate and apart from the sinful culture that they live in. Amen. So consecration, holiness, say it with me. Holiness is the effect of consecration. Consecration means to fill or be full of. To fill or be full of. It lends to the idea of being fenced. Consecration doesn't only mean emptying the world out from your being, but its real literal definition means to be Filled or to be full of. Amen. If I wasn't teaching a Bible study, I'd feel a little bit like preaching right there. Because consecration is not just emptying stuff out. It's not just making a list of all the stuff I got to get rid of. Consecration means to fill up. And holiness is the result of consecration. So the more I fill myself up with God, the more it affects holiness in my life. Holiness is not just getting stuff out of my life. It's getting filled up with God. And the more full of God I get, the more consecrated I get, 
then the more it pushes worldliness out of my life. Amen. Holiness is not a list of rules that we check off. I've done this, this, this. I got rid of this, this, and this. True holiness is getting so full of God that there's not room for the things that don't please Him. We get so full, so consecrated to God that we don't want the things that the world has for us anymore. It fundamentally changes our mindset and our desires because we're consecrated. We're filled up with God. And the effect of that filling is that I don't want to have room for anything else in my life. Hallelujah. Amen. I'm talking tonight about a fundamental concept of holiness that I fear had been lost for generations among many Pentecostals. Because to too many Pentecostals, it's a list of what we have to do. We check it off. And we can have a rotten spirit and a rotten attitude. We can talk terrible to people. But as long as we check off our list of stuff, then we count ourselves as holy. But we don't pray, and we don't worship, and we're not faithful. We don't love each other. We don't pray for each other. But true holiness means we're so filled up with the things of God that all that other stuff gets pushed out of our life. I'm talking about a fundamental mentality of holiness that says, God, I don't want to be holy just from a legalistic standpoint that I followed all the rules. What I want is for you to get me so full of your spirit that those rules are next, they don't mean anything to me. I'm happy to do it because I'm so full and the effect of consecration is holiness hallelujah oh god so holiness is the work of the holy ghost inside you that transforms you into his nature praise god there's a reason it's called the holy ghost because when we get the holy ghost inside It wants to transform us to be more like him. Hallelujah. Therefore, the true definitional meaning of holy does not only mean withdrawing from something, it's withdrawing into something. In almost every place. Now look, I'm only halfway through my notes and I'm not planning on getting through all of them. So don't get too uncomfortable on me here but in almost every place that Paul refers to holiness he does not refer only to culture but he takes us to creation to original condition Paul therefore calls for compliance in matters of holiness on the basis of what we were created to be we were created to be in fellowship with God And anything that separates that fellowship is unholy. Amen. So holiness is best viewed as relational rather than rules. Rules are impersonal, but relational has a personal touch to it. Bishop Billy McCool said, rules without relationship leads to rebellion. 
There are some things that men do not because they're physically afraid of their wives, but because they know it's better for their relationship. Now notice I said physically afraid. I know there's a, there's a certain amount of fear in there. The Bible teaches that holiness is an absolute requirement for Christians. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. That doesn't mean speaking, that means life. In all manner of living. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. We cannot be the people of God if we're not willing to live holy. Because he told us, be holy, for I'm holy. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. If you want to be the temple of God, you got to be holy. Amen. And holiness must involve separation from worldliness. Now, I believe, I've been doing some study lately. I've been doing some reading. I haven't really, I haven't really, uh, I haven't got to the point where I want to do a whole lesson on it, but, but there's a difference between worldliness and carnality. Worldly means you're minded for the things of the world. Carnal means you're flesh-driven, not spirit-driven. You can follow every standard in the Bible and still be Carnal. Amen. But worldly is not following the standards of the Bible. You can be carnal and not necessarily be worldly, but you can't be worldly and not be carnal too. Because it's the flesh driving. 2 Corinthians 6, 17 and 18. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. That is the call. Remember what holiness is? Apartness, right? Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and you shall be, shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Separate. The word separate here means to mark off by boundaries, to limit, to separate. I'm going to tell you, one of the most important things you'll do as a Christian is learn to set boundaries in your life. Amen. There are some people that may be good, but that doesn't mean they're good for you. If you can't be around them and live right, then they're not good for you. You need to learn how to set boundaries. Amen. That last 10 seconds, some of the best preaching I've ever done. Because if we'll learn to set limits and boundaries in our lives, we'll cut off a whole lot of the struggles that we have. Amen. So separate. Be ye separate. Mark off by boundaries. Limit. Separate. Set apart. 
Christians are called to come out from among them. I've quoted this verse my whole life nearly. I never took the time to really go back and see what are the them that I'm supposed to be coming out from. But in verse 14, this is that's 2 Corinthians 6, 17. In verse 14 of the same chapter, it talks about being unequally yoked with unbelievers, being connected in relationships with people that aren't believers. He said you got to be careful about how you yoke yourself with unbelievers. In verse 15, he says, don't have part with infidels. Verse number 16, he says, he talks about idols and people who worship idols. He says, you got to come out from among them. People that, that are unbelievers, people that are infidels, people that have idols in their life. You've got to come out from among them and be separate. You've got to build limits and guides and fences in your life. He said, touch not the unclean thing. You've got to leave unclean things alone. You've got to learn not to touch the unclean. And then he gives you a promise. And I will receive you. Praise God. If we will separate, if we will have boundaries in our lives, limits, be set apart for God's purpose, he gives us special promises. Number one, I will receive you. The next verse, and I will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. It's relational, right? I told you, true holiness is relational. He said, you separate, you have boundaries, you set limits in your life, you get set apart for God's purpose, and I'll receive you, and it will restore relationship. I'll be your father, you'll be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. These are powerful promises. These are powerful promises. And they should be viewed as so wonderful that God would be my father. I can be his son. That he will receive me to him. Doesn't matter who in the world rejects me. God says, live holy, I'll receive you. Come out from among them and be ye separate and I'll receive you. The whole world might reject you. But if the whole world rejects me and Jesus receives me, then I'm all right. I can live with that. I'll be your father and you'll be my. This, he said, these are awesome promises. Well, you know, the Bible, when, when Paul sat down to write this, he didn't write, he didn't write the chapters and the verses. The chapters and verses were added long time later to make it easier for us to find certain verses. So, so when they sat down, they just wrote it like a letter. They just wrote long form. And then later on, years later, people came by and added chapters. And so, and so let, me read, let me read the first verse of chapter 7. It follows. I'm going, to read, I'm going to read 17 and 18, and then I'm going to keep reading into the next chapter. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons 
and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty, having therefore these promises. Because God has given you such a great promise, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So many people in this modern culture use their relationship with God as an excuse for the flesh. He's my father. He loves me. I can do what I want. He's my father. He loves me. He's not going to send me to hell for this or that or this or that. And they try to leverage a relationship to allow their flesh to do what they want. But Paul said, because we have these promises, then let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Because God will receive me, I'm going to cleanse myself from the filthiness of the flesh. Because God's going to be my father, I'm going to cleanse myself from the filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Now, a lot of modern I feel, I feel like I lost y'all a few minutes ago. A lot of modern Christianity, they, they, they don't want to see that, the, that holiness is flesh and spirit. They want to do whatever they want, wear whatever they want, live however they want, and say, my spirit's right. But the writer said, because you've got these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Perfect holiness is inside and out. It's not outside only or inside only. Perfect holiness is inside and out. Amen. Let me just go ahead and throw one more little stick on the fire while I'm doing it. The Bible says, let us cleanse ourselves. Well, God, if you don't want me to do that, then you give me conviction. He put it in his book. He doesn't owe you a feeling. It's in this book. He doesn't owe us an explanation. It's in this book how he wants us to live. He doesn't have to let me feel like it's right. He said, let us cleanse ourselves. You have the responsibility to cleanse yourself. God, take it away from me. Well, God's not going to do that. He didn't give it to you. And so you have to cleanse yourself. Amen. Praise God. Let me drive a few more nails and aggravate a few more people before I get done. One more passage. We're going to read a few verses from 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4. Verse number 7. Let's start at verse number 7. For God hath not called us to uncleanness, but unto holiness. We heard that a while ago. He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God. You better be careful hanging out with people who make fun of holiness. People that make jokes. People that try to get you to compromise. Paul said, 
He that despises doesn't despise man. He despises God who hath given unto us his Holy Spirit. He said it's God that put the Spirit in you to try to lead you to holiness. And when somebody tries to fight against that, they're not fighting you, they're fighting God. Amen. Holiness is not only external, but it is part external. I have to have a pure heart and a right spirit. God help me. I struggle with that sometimes, having a right spirit. I get so frustrated. This isn't confession time. I'll move on. I want to have a teachable attitude. Holiness is not a means of earning salvation. It's a result of salvation working in us. Can I, can I read one more verse to you? Or maybe, well, a few more, maybe. Psalms 29 and 2, given to the Lord the glory due his name. What does that phrase mean? Give unto the Lord the glory due his name. It means that God deserves. He's due it. He deserves it. When you pay something, someone what they're due, you give them what they deserve, right? He said, give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Well, what, what does he deserve then? Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. He deserves his people to live a holy life. The word worship means to bow down or to submit to. The word, the Lord there means Jehovah. The word beauty means the holy adornment. It's the word Hadara in the Hebrew, holy adornment, glory. The word holiness, apartness, consecrated. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Here's what the Amplified Bible says. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness and in holy array. The Emphasized Bible, bow down to Yahweh in the adornment of holiness. New American Bible, worship the Lord in holy attire. The literal reading, submit to Jehovah in the external adornment of separation. God has called us to live holy. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 4, that every one of you, I told you we were going to be in 1 Thessalonians 4, I just threw Psalms in the middle of it. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 4, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. You have to learn to possess your body and not let your body possess you. Know how to possess his vessel in sanctification, separateness, set-apartness. I got to learn how to live a holy life. I got to discipline myself. The next verse, verse 5, not in the lust of concupiscence. That con word concupiscence means a longing for what's forbidden. Not in a lust for what you shouldn't. Not always longing for what you shouldn't have. Even as the Gentiles that don't know God, he said, don't. Let your life be ruled by lust, by fleshly desires, by worldly desires. 
Verse number seven, for God hath not called us to uncleanliness, but to holiness. The word called means to invite, to bid. God has not invited us to uncleanliness, but he has invited us to holiness. There's no way I'm going to get through, so this is a good stopping point. God, I pray that you help us, Lord. God, to adopt the proper mindset. God, as a pastor, I don't want our people to only know the particulars. To check the list of things they're supposed to do or not do. But God, I pray that this lesson somehow tonight has helped us to get a clear understanding of what holiness is. Help us to be consecrated to you. Filled up with you. And that holiness is the effect of consecration. Lord, I pray, God, that we don't view holiness only as pushing stuff out of our lives, but it's the filling up by you that begins to press these things further from our desires. Lord, I ask you to let your spirit so rest in us, not just in our church as we come together, but in our church as individuals. God, that we would get a desire to learn the principles of holiness, its relationship. That God, I want that, I want to be received by you, and I want you to be my father, and I want to be your son. And because of these promises, God, because of the greatness of that promise, help me to learn how to cleanse myself from the filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the will of God. Lord, I pray for your people. I pray that you bless them, God. I pray that you would open heaven for them. I pray, God, that when they call on your name, that you would hear and answer. Lord, I pray, bring us back this weekend ready to have Holy Ghost revival in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. God bless you. You are dismissed in the name of the Lord.